Now that's taken in my parents' house and in Dorky. And those ancient curtains, I remember, were green. So that was, I think, Dave making a little speech or something. And, uh, yeah, two glasses of God knows what. Sparkling wine or something. I don't know if it was champagne. Somebody else would have brought it. And a bit of confetti. I was wearing a little skull cap and a kind of medieval-style gown which a friend of mine had made. But there we go. Yeah, that was a few hours before we came here. We begin at the National Stadium on Dublin's South Circular Road. And venue manager David McCartney is letting Alison O'Donnell have a quick look around. It's been 50 years since she last stood and sung inside this place. Yeah, it's a bit cold and lonely now here today. <laughs> we just had a, a Best known for its boxing connections, the stadium also has a rich musical heritage that stretches back decades. And on the 8th of January, 1972, Mellow Candle, the band Alison formed with her school friend, Clodagh Simmons, supported Thin Lizzy here. It also happened to be the day she married lead guitarist in the band, Dave Williams. There's a song I often sing in, in traditional circles, and it's The Lowlands of Holland, and it's about a, a young person newly married and has to leave suddenly, you know. And uh, I was thinking to myself, you know, the night that I was married and in my marriage bed played a gig with Thin Lizzy at the stadium whilst I was newly wed. <laughs> And I was thinking of that song because I really often sing it and thinking I could change the first verse. Because <laughs> that's what I was doing. Nineteen seventy-two was a good year for Irish music. Christy Moore released his second solo album, Prosperous, with a lineup that included Andy Irvine, Limo Flynn, and Donal Lunny. Out of that adventure emerged the legendary Planksty. Meanwhile, Horselips recorded their debut album, Happy to Meet, Sorry to Part, and Lizzie topped the Christmas shards with whiskey in the jar. Nineteen seventy-two was also the year Mellow Candle released their sole studio album Swaddling Songs, but it failed to make the sort of immediate impact those other records did at the time. In fact, just like the lyric in their song, The Poet and the Witch, it sank like a stone. Shunned by both critics and audiences, Mellow Candle split soon after. Demoralised, disheartened, their music destined to disappear without trace. They haven't recorded a note of new music since, yet the band's legacy remains unfinished. Their name often whispered as something special in musical circles, 
their album found and fawned over by a new generation. So, 50 years on, now is as good a time as ever to tell the remarkable and oftentimes dramatic story behind this master album, created by one of the most mysterious and maverick bands to emerge out of the then burgeoning Dublin music scene. Holy Child Convent School in the coastal village of Kalini, South Dublin, is where Alison first met Cloda. I went here from the age of five or six, I think. Um, and I think this is the old, yeah, this is the original nuns' part. This is where the nuns used to live. And we were never allowed to go up there. It was absolutely off limits. It was 1963. Alison was 11. Clode at 10, they were music mad and decided to form a group with another school friend, Mariah White, briefly calling themselves the Gate Crashers before settling on the name Mellow Candle. Oh, that's the stage. Oh, really? I think that's the stage, yeah. Let's go on. I'm just going to have a little quick look there. Oh, yeah, this is the stage. We're standing on the stage where we did several school concerts. So it's a very, very familiar sight. So it would have been one of the first Mellow Candle gigs? Absolutely, was, yeah. Definitely first Mellow Candle gig. Two of them. I still have a little set list at home of exactly what we did in one of those concerts. But, yeah, there were, we did a proper set. I had 20 minutes or something, you know. And the piano is still there, look. That's exactly where it was. Wow, it's quite weird standing here. But it's quite a warm feeling. <laughs> Those school concerts, yep. as you would expect, featured the trio singing many of the big hits of the day. But they were also writing and performing their own songs from an early age. Okay, okay so. <laughs> Songwriter in the group was Clodagh Simmons. So I was eight when I first went to Colonia. I remember having my ninth birthday. Over the years, Cloda has lived in Dublin, London and New York. But these days, West Cork is home. And I'd learned the piano. I'd learned to play the piano with my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who taught me how to play like chopsticks and things like that. And I'd had an aptitude for it. The family was musical. All the family was pretty musical. But the thing that had me writing songs was a very clear moment, and it was up in the north of Ireland. That grandmother lived in the north. I was with an older girl, and I still can't remember who it was, some friend of the family, not a close friend. We were at a beach. It was a day like this. It was a grey day, and, you know, I was perfectly content. We were just wandering around the beach. There was a cafe on the beach... Uh, that was open, but it had hardly anybody in it. We go into this cafe, and there was a jukebox. I had not seen a jukebox before. 
And so she goes over to this jukebox and she's I like what is it? She said, Oh, you pick a record and it plays the record, you know. And so she picked to do Ron Ron. <laughs> And I still can't ever forget the, the, what it did to me. I just was literally transfixed. I couldn't, I remember being rooted to the spot and I'd never heard anything like it. It was so powerful, but it sounded really easy. I mean, I, I knew enough about music. You know, those are not difficult chords. There's like, how many chords in it? There's three chords in it all the way through, I think. I knew those chords. I knew how to play that. And the other kind of pop music that I'd heard hadn't been quite so straightforward, maybe. I mean, that's the thing about Phil Spector that I, I still absolutely adore all of that music. And it still makes my spine tingle, but it just does uncontrollably when I hear it. I love that drenched, saturated reverb and the, the kind of pounding drum. I just love that sound. I've never been able to replicate it, but I thought that maybe I could. And that just got me off to a start, you know. And then I very quickly just fell in love with the whole process of writing a song. I just thought it was the most exciting thing you could possibly do. So now we're in the music room, which has changed, um, and they were... They Chances were are, if you were a pupil at the Holy Child Convent in the 60s, and you happened to be anywhere around the music room at lunchtime, you would have heard Alison, Cloda and Mariah huddled around a piano, practising their harmonies, working out arrangements and sharing songwriting ideas. We were left to do it on our own, and uh, nobody came in and tried to take over or mould us or anything. So, you know, being able to develop in, in that kind of freely spirited way, and it was very spirited, meant that we have carried that all through our career of doing what we want to do. But, you know, it, it all started here at Holy Child. That's, we were allowed to develop like that. And for that, I thank them greatly. Alison is absolutely right when she said they never tried to stop us. They'd never stopped us from making an almighty racket. We made so much noise in the music rooms. You could hear it all over, you know, that side of the school. They never said, look, would you shut up? And they could so easily have. And they didn't because they knew that we were very, very passionate about it, you know. Like any teen band, the dream was to make it get their faces on television, hear their songs on the radio. 
looking at ways they could gain recognition outside the walls of Holy Child and with opportunities to publicise their music few and far between in Ireland, Cloda, brimming with youthful naivety, wrote to Colin Nicol, a DJ at Radio Luxembourg. Obviously we started dreaming about making a record or, you know, and I thought, okay, well obviously what you have to do is you have to get on the radio first and in order to get on the radio, surely you have to contact a DJ. So that's what I felt was necessary. So I wrote to Colin Nickel, who was a DJ with Radio Luxembourg. And I remember I got it into my mind. I wasn't going to tell the others. I wasn't going to tell Alison and Mariah that I'd done it because I felt like a little bit of an idiot. I thought, well, this might not work, but why not? And then I thought, well, I won't tell them it kind of partly in case it doesn't work. And I get everyone's hopes up. But also I felt it wouldn't be auspicious. I just had this funny idea, this has to be a secret. You're doing this, it's a secret. So I wrote. And I heard nothing and I heard nothing and I heard nothing. And to me, it seemed like an eternity passed. I think, in fact, it was about six weeks, seven weeks. And I got this letter from Colin Nickel um, and said, yeah, this sounds great. Send me a tape, you know. So... Then we made our first recording and we, I think we borrowed a tape recorder from somebody and we sent it off. This time with kind of renewed enthusiasm, you know, please help us. Everybody just thinks we're these crazy kids, but we think we're great, you know, this kind of stuff. We were like 14 or 13. And he got back to us and said, I think this is great. Nickel passed the demo on to Simon and Napier Bell. Bell would go on to become one of the most successful managers in British pop music, perhaps best known as the man who discovered Wham in the 1980s. But back in 1968, he had just set up his own label, SNB, and on the lookout for new emerging talent, invited Mellow Candle over to London to record their debut single at Trident Studios with a full orchestra and legendary backing vocalists, The Breakaways, who only weeks earlier had backed Cliff Richard's performance of Congratulations at the Eurovision Song Contest. So, quite a step up from the music room at Holy Child and concerts on the school stage. I was 15 then, Alison and I would have been 16, and off we went. And we had, my mum insisted that we stay in like some place with the nuns, and that was approved by my mum. <laughs> and um, first of all, I remember going to meet Simon Napier-Bell and, you know, you felt totally excited but also quite quite terrified in a way because suddenly, you know, you're, you're still very young and you, your dream is coming true but who are these people and are they okay and is everything going to... You know, it's quite scary. And then going into the studio, oh yeah, Colin had explained that he'd worked with an arranger, I cannot remember his name, Ian Green maybe, who had orchestrated these two songs and got these backup singers. And I do remember walking into the studio and that was like a double whammy. Now, Alison forgets this, but we bumped into Mark Bolan. He was coming out of a lift and I remember nearly dying, I mean, just doing such a double take. I think 
he was probably the first famous person that I'd ever seen. And I adored him, you know, so that was like head-exploding moment. And then about 10 minutes later, you walk into the studio and this huge orchestra is playing your little song. So that was, I don't know how my head stayed on my body. And um, we were kind of shepherded in. It was all quite quick, as I recall. I have a, a mental image of us all standing around a microphone and the breakaways being up in a, a top and, and, you know, the orchestra being conducted. And it was, it was just so surreal. I, and that's all I can do, how I can describe it. It was totally surreal because it, it just didn't seem quite real that we were actually doing this. And there was an element of being overawed. And, and also because they couldn't really talk to us like we were adults because we were children. And when you listen to it, like, it's really flat. <laughs> I mean, it's really... I, I have to admit, I don't enjoy listening to it at all. <laughs> but there we go. With the single in the bag, the teenage pop star Dream was alive and well. Alison, Cloda and Mariah headed back to Dublin, back to school and waited to hear if their song got played on the radio. Every night I had a transistor radio, which had a lovely little black leather case under the, under the sheets and blankets. And I had it every night listening. And I think it was, I think it was 1.20 a.m. on Radio Luxembourg. And, you know, I heard this, it's a single, I, the, the opening bars are feeling high. And I leapt out of bed and ran into my parents' room, fast asleep, because the whole house was asleep. And I burst in the other one. I didn't care what time it was. The single's just been on the radio. It's just been on the radio. And to, to their credit, they didn't say you should be asleep. So everybody was quite excited. It was so exciting. It was massively exciting to hear yourself singing on the radio. Today. failed to set the charts alight. A few months later, the label SNB folded, and by 1969, the girls had drifted into separate worlds. Cloda was off living in Rome, Alison was doing a secretarial course, and Mariah had left the group for good. Bringing to an end chapter one of the Mellow Candle story. Do you want to take a break? Yeah. Ah! 
it's a classic first album. So you kind of it's an album you make with no expectations. You're not trying to fulfil a brief. You're just it's pure expression and. I just love the fact that, you know, these incredibly sort of talented teenage girls that were just so in command of what they were doing, and they were all just in deference, enthralled to this incredible sort of visionary songwriting talent they had. What an amazing thing. Music journalist, broadcaster and author Pipa Fides picked up a copy of Swaddling Songs at a record fair back in the mid-90s. He's been a fan of the album and the band ever since. Clodagh, she wrote Lonely Man when she was 12. That's astounding, you know, and it's, and that's why I talk about being in a visionary state, because I think when you're younger, what you don't know makes you quite fearless. And so you can completely give yourself into this kind of florid way, a really hugely imaginative florid way of writing. I would compare them to, I think, Kate Bush, Joanna Newsom, these incredible singer-songwriters who just allowed themselves to surrender to this overwhelming poetic way of looking at the world. And, you know, you become brilliant at other things, but there's just a way of looking at the world. It's just a window that's so open for a very short amount of time. And you have to be fearless and you have to write it down and act upon it there and then. And that energy and that vision is sort of abundant in swaddling songs. As Pete mentioned, Alison and Clodagh were still teenagers when they recorded Swaddling Songs in December 1971. And songs like Lonely Man bear little resemblance to the luscious girl group pop sound created just three years earlier on Feeling High. But they did pack a lot of experience into those three years. You want to put that down on that chair and be oh, say, yeah. or somewhere away, yeah? Because yes. there's a lot of stuff here. And much of that living is documented in the boxes of memories and memorabilia Alison has collected over the years. Schoolgirls pop success, yeah. <laughs> Evening Herald. 6th of September. Yeah, that would be in the 60s, mid-60s sometime. Spread out across her dining room table are yellowing newspaper cuttings, black and white photos, ticket stubs, posters and so much more. Each one with a tale to tell. There's the Wexford Festival programme, 1971. And see Dr. Strangely Strange, Fairport Convention. Saw both of them there. Yeah, Mellow Candle. And, well, we were playing with Tiernan Ogan, Principal Edwards Magic, Magic Theatre. That was really nice, that festival. It was lovely. But Dave and I had to... Um, stay overnight somewhere or we did afterwards or something and we had to put on curtain rings i had to put on a curtain ring on my finger to say we were married because they wouldn't have let us stay otherwise yeah because we weren't married till january 72. dave williams was the key player in the re-emergence of mellow candle in 1970. he and alison were at that stage playing together in a covers band called blue tint and they'd also started to date 
Well, because his, um, he had lived in Africa in the New Hebrides and places, he was considered a bit exotic, you know. Uh, he used to tell stories about playing in, in strip clubs in, in Mombasa and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, he was in Trinity and uh, doing philosophy and psychology and he neglected his studies. He was very, very clever but he neglected his studies and his father wasn't too happy about that. He didn't want him to become a musician. But music became much more important for him and he finished his degree and that was it. He left it behind. It was Williams who suggested that he, Alison and Clodagh should join forces and work together following Clodagh's return to Ireland after her spell living in Italy. And his influence on the second incarnation of the band was immediate. I think Dave just introduced us to about 80% more music than we'd ever heard before. And we began, and he was always very interested in arranging. I mean, he and I did all the Mellow Candle arrangements really pretty much. And um, that was incredibly an incredibly fruitful uh, relationship for me because I had never worked with a band lineup, for example. I'd never worked with bass guitars and drums and stuff before then and never really thought about how are you going to assign the baseline and what kind of, how are you going to do the, you know. So with Dave's help and uh, encouragement, we really worked together a lot on that. And he would, we'd sit down for hours and listen to bands like Jethro Tull and Yes. Dave was a, a big Yes fan. And at the same time, we were being introduced to some of the more sophisticated folk rock things like Fairport Convention, we all loved Fairport, Steel Eye Span, Pentangle. So this is what we really focused on. Okay, here's a song, it's got three verses and a, and a middle bit, but let's play around with it. Let's like write a completely different introduction, you know what I mean? So that kind of freedom or it just hadn't crossed my mind on my own aged 15 at school. I just thought, well, you just find the chords and think of a harmony and that's kind of more or less it <laughs> but when we when mellow candle mark two and you just you have this completely different possibilities of different palette of possible colors and what you can do as an arrangement that you can't really do if it's just you sitting at a piano around the same time dave came on board a fourth member bassist pat morris was recruited and ted carroll started to manage them an intense period of creativity followed, with the band working hard, developing what would eventually evolve into their unique sound. They weren't drawing on other other bands or other, other musicians. They were kind of just plowing their own furrow, you know. So they had a, a sort of a, an original character. That's the voice of Donald Lunny, a founder member of seminal trad bands, Planksy, the Bothy Band and Moving Hearts. But back in 1971, he and Andy Irvine set up a regular gig at Slattery's on Cable Street called The Mugs Gig and Mellow Candle became regulars. Here's Andy. My main memory is as one of the promoters of that club, you know, it was, it was always like you had to remember to get the ad in to the evening press uh, on a certain day. And, and it was always kind of the, a responsibility uh, which one wasn't particularly uh, used to responsibilities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But Mellow Candle were great the way that they would they would very often, if you couldn't, you know, if it kind of somebody said, ah, oh, listen, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cancel that gig, you'd, you'd immediately get on to Clodagh or, or Alice and say, any chance you could... And they'd roll up within their... They had a van, I'm sure, didn't they? Because they brought the PA and and, uh, and electric pianos and things. And and they always played well. They They were professional to a T... We were getting to hang out with the cream of Irish musicians, really, indefinitely, you know, until five o'clock in the morning after every Slattery's gig we did once a week. And that was, I think that was very formative, actually. And the fact that Donald thought what we were doing was good was hugely encouraging. I just loved uh, the band and I loved what they were doing and what they were able to do. The sort of musical centre was Dave. He was the kind of energy, musical energy generator, really. And Clodo is herself an original in what she does. And that was a fantastic combination. And then Clodo and Alison singing together were another force. So they really had a sort of a lovely energy. Yeah. Yeah. They had a song called Down the Wing. Do you remember that? No. Oh, it was great. Yeah. It, uh, I would just say it expressed their sort of musical identity perfectly. It was sort of encapsulated in that song. By late 1970, Mellow Candle were beginning to attract some record label interest eventually brokering a deal with the Decca offshoot Diram in April 71. The label suggested they add a full-time drummer to their lineup and Willie Murray joined the group. Around the same time, Pat Morris opted out and was replaced by Frank Boylan from another Ted Carroll-managed band, The Creatures. And it was the classic Mellow Candle lineup of Cloda, Alison, Dave, Willie and Frank that headed into Decca's newly built Tonnington Park Studios in London in December 71 to record swaddling songs. So I can move, I've got a tangle of cables around me. I'm just going to move the microphone a little bit now. How's, how's that sounding? Is that clarity there? Diram's in-house producer David Hitchcock was at the controls and sound engineer for the sessions was Derek Varnells. It's hard to remember about first impressions, but it was a a very professional thing. Dave Hitchcock had booked 10 days in the studio and I met them on day one in the morning. They arrived. I'd got the studio set up the way I wanted it to be. And uh, they came in, they set up and they played the first track. Of course, I'd never heard any of the tracks. I didn't even know what sort of band they were. You just, you know, literally, you play it by ear if you're a sound engineer. And then, you know, light the blue touch paper and off you go, you know. They were obviously very well rehearsed and they needed to be because they were very adventurous arrangements in the sense that they were complicated. Time signatures, breaks, tempos, 
members of the band playing with each other, you know, piano and guitar and bass, they formed a unit, but they had very good discipline and they knew the songs inside out. very hard to keep up with the rate that they wanted to work at but they wanted to work at to get the perfection of their arrangements and when we were doing Reverend Sisters Clodagh and Alison said to me the uh, it's a song about um, the convent school and and I said oh so it's a bit sort of you want it to sound a bit like a church so I got the piano lid open so that I could record it properly get the full range of the piano, and it sounded nice. And I said, it needs to ring a bit more. So I said to Clodagh, can you not use the soft pedal? You know, use the sustain as much as you can. Let it ring a bit like a bell. So I was able to record that in stereo, and with the right amount of reverb on it, it sounded good. And then when it came to doing the vocals, I said... I need to have you on two microphones, one each, to make it stereo, but you can stand how you like. And I said, do you want to look at each other? And so we got them to be close to each other, but slightly facing each other. And again, matching the reverb to the piano, it made it sound a little bit, well, spiritual, holy, I suppose. It sounded like it was in a church and to give the feel that they're singing to the Reverend Sisters. We were just so delighted to put down what we had been working on for so long and so hard and had got to a state that we thought was ready. And I actually can remember recording my vocal for Messenger Birds because I have a mental image of me with my eyes closed thinking, this is the best I can sing. And I can remember that. There was just the way it was flowing and because it's a kind of lyrical song where there's no other voices and it's it fairly goes along fairly easily i think that i just got into a complete sort of blissed out state singing it and i can i look back on that and there's nothing wrong with it Oh, 
Swaddling Songs was released in April 72. The year glam broke big and just weeks before David Bowie's era-defining moment on Top of the Pops performing Starman. Along with the platform boots, spacesuits and glitter, glam marked return to the thrill of the pop single and with an album that contained no obvious hit, Swaddling Songs almost immediately slipped off the musical radar. The band's cause not helped by Decca's lack of promotion around the record release. Oh, that's Ted Carroll's letter about yeah, how there was no promo. Album completed early December. Yeah, five months wait for release. All proposed publicity and promotion fell through. I just didn't do anything. No interest. Gig placards had wrong picture, typos, no shop displays, no promotional ideas. How many albums have gone to the shops? Question mark. Nothing. Zip. Why? That's why. When they spent all that money on the studio and the producer and everything, why did they do that? It's very difficult looking back from this point to the early 70s. This is Mellow Candle's then manager, Ted Carroll. Just having an album out in itself was generally was enough to at least get some, you know, generate some low-level gigs. And they certainly would have been prepared to do those slogging up and down England gigs, I think, initially anyway. But they just weren't available, you know. But I felt the album was strong enough to warrant them to be able to make progress in terms of uh, as a live band. And I thought their live show was sufficiently different and unique to, to work. They've tended to fall between two stools because being having a drummer and stuff like that and being electric, they didn't really fit into the folk clubs. And they were probably too sort of quiet, really, for the rock clubs. There were probably odd rock clubs that might have booked them, but we didn't get the gigs, you know. By this stage, the band had relocated to London and were sharing a house together. But with no gigs, no promotion and an album that wasn't selling, confidence gradually began to erode, morale started to sink and tensions were on the rise. Within the space of a few months, they lost their label, manager and bass player, with Frank Boylan being replaced by Steve Burrell. They were also booked on a Dutch tour, which turned out to be a scam, robbing the band of whatever bit of money they had. And then there was the dreaded musical differences that quarrelling groups can never seem to escape or outgrow. The inevitable breakup in 1973 was anything but mellow, with the band splitting acrimoniously into two camps. Cloda, Willie and Steve in one, Dave and Alison in the other bringing to an end a 10-year musical adventure. It was a very, very, very bad time. I remember feeling absolutely devastated. And I know Cloda did as well. I mean, it changed our lives. We went to different countries because of that. As far, we got as far away as possible from, from the scene of, 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 of our dream crashing, basically. And that's what happened. And I mean, it sounds cliched, but that's exactly what happened. We went to other parts of the world to escape that awful mess. 
Alison and Dave ended up in Cape Town following the split. There they got involved with the traditional music scene and formed a new band, Fliberty Gibbet. Dave also worked with the South African Broadcasting Corporation for many years as a sound engineer and music producer. And during that time, he also played with many local musicians. He and Alison divorced in 1980, but remain good friends. Dave was diagnosed with Alzheimer's a number of years ago. Cloda and Willie moved to New York in 1976, where they collaborated on a number of musical projects, performing at venues like CBGB's and the Mud Club. Cloda left the US in 1986, while Willie remained, working as a fashion photographer in LA, Dallas and New York, before relocating to Dublin the following decade. He was only 47 when he died in 1998. We got on like a house on fire, Willie and me, like right from the start. And he just introduced me to writers I'd never heard of, movies I'd never heard of, music I'd never heard. And I think when you get a whole raft of fresh influences like that, of course, it really makes a big difference to the direction you go in. And when you're working with other people, you know, the whole the whole mix changes. So for that reason, I think that Dave and Willie in particular had a, a, a very significant creative input to the band. And, and that's probably the main reason I always feel like wince slightly if the impression is given that the band was me and Alison and these guys, whoever they were. You know, it's not accurate at all. With swaddling songs failing to register much interest first time round, Mellow Candle seemed destined to be just another one of those forgotten bands whose music got lost to time. But there was to be one final twist in their story. Oh, this is big. The dad's copy of Mellow Candle. This is like a sort of prog psych legendary sort of progressive folk type of record from the time that's like a massive deal that nobody listened to and then later on became more and more sort of like oh actually this is like a really important like i mean the same story as the nick drake ones that's a clip from a recent episode of the bbc6 music radio program peel acres and features acclaimed composer, producer and vinyl enthusiast Kieran Hebden of Fortet fame, picking out swaddling songs as one of the records he wanted to showcase from the tens of thousands of albums and singles John Peel collected over his lifetime. These days, an original mint copy of Swaddling Songs, like the one in the Peel collection, comes with a €3,000 plus asking price. Yep, that album that nobody wanted in 1972 is now one of the most sought after on the rare record collector scene. Candle's Lazarus-like resurrection from the depths of obscurity began in the late 80s and early 90s 
when, unbeknownst to the band, Swaddling Songs had resurfaced and was being hailed as a lost classic by a new generation of record collectors who rediscovered the album rummaging through crates and bins of vinyl in second-hand record shops. All I know is that it started in Japan. Japan was the first place that I heard about that people were talking a lot about Mellow Candle. And then you heard the album, the original album, was selling for a lot of money. And then all that interest began to come back. And I felt, gosh, I was kind of uncomfortable with it at first. I think only because, you know, most of us are not that comfortable with what we did when we were 17 and 18. You kind of think, oh, God, you know, you kind of... I hadn't listened to the album for a long time. Musically, I'd moved right away from that style and been through all kinds of musical adventures since. And so, in a way, it can be hard to recognise that was you. But... At the same time, you can't, you can't deny that that was you. You wrote those songs, you made that album, and you know that's is re-emerging. It's very puzzling. The cult of the candle continues to this day. Numerous reissues down the years have expanded Swaddling Songs' availability well beyond the small group who can afford or indeed are willing to spend the kind of money an original copy will set you back. It's also an album that's become a big influence for many younger musicians, including Drew Daniel from the American experimental electronic duo Matmos. When Acme reissued Swaddling Songs, I bought it and I was blown away uh, by the album. It's such an aggressively powerful mixture of Prague and folk and rock and there's something so muscular about the arrangements and yet the the music is not athletic in a show-offy way often Prague is a little bit self-absorbed sounding as if it you know wants you to notice the intricacy and on swaddling songs some of the shapes of the songs are incredibly intricate but there's something so emotionally resonant and immediate about the harmony singing that you're really transported. I I just think it's a very powerful work of art. It transcends the bell bottoms and patchouli of its moment to be something, you know, portable. It's, it's powerful. It's a little scary uh, at times, but it spoke to me and, and, and startled me. That's why I love the album. That's why I think it's held up beautifully. Alison and Cloda have gone on to lead very different lives, but they continue to make music that defies categorization. In recent years, Alison has worked with the likes of Owl Service, Head South by Weaving, United Bible Studies, and regularly releases new solo material. In 2015, Cloda established her own label, Janet Records. She releases music under the name Fovia Hex, working with an impressive cast of left-field collaborators that has, in the past, included Brian Eno, Robert Fripp and Stephen Wilson. Alison and Clodagh's friendship ended in 1973 following the band's breakup, but it was rekindled in the mid-80s, and these days they remain in regular contact. 
Alison. I'm hugging you. Should I, I wear, wear a mask? No. Are you sure? I took a test. No, no. Not oh, at all. I'm wearing it so I can give you a hug. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Now <laughs> I'm going to take it off. Okay. <laughs> Come in. Commercial success may have eluded them. There was to be no hit single, no fame, nor fortune. Yet 50 years on, that timeless sounding record, Alison and Cloda, helped to create in their teens, continues to move, inspire and find new listeners. It was, yeah, a time of incredibly undiluted enthusiasm, which is what comes with not knowing anything, in a way. This kind of glorious burst between, say, 15 and 18, that where you're just finding your feet, you're finding your tribe, you're finding what you want to do, and you feel, which I guess this feeling has to accompany it, that nothing can ever stop you. Nothing, you're, nothing's going to stop you. You know, you're not thinking about anything but this moment, this song, getting it right, singing it right, playing it. You're not wondering if you've got uh, your frock right or if you've, you know, what your best angle is for the photographs. It's not even nowhere on your radar. All you're thinking about is the music. Yeah, you're right about that. Because people like Billie Eilish and Lord and all of these young performers who are in their teens, people recognise that they've got an energy that's special. And that, that is quite true, that, that people do, it's a palpable thing, they can feel it. And, uh, you know, it's a wave you can ride. And pretty much by the time you're about 20, I reckon it's gone. Or it's been moderated, it's been modified, sometimes very positively. But that kind of sparkle, you know, unrestrained quality has changed. And then you discover, actually, there are things that can stop you. And it's painful, but it's an incredibly important learning. That sounds like a very weird thing to say was the highlight. Actually, literally, the highlight for me was bumping into Mark Bolan. <laughs> Coming out of a lift. I will, that will be with me on my deathbed. I mean, really, now, that, that, was, <laughs> that was an extraordinary moment for a 15-year-old girl, do you know? I can't, I can't pick anything out as a highlight, just the whole Mellow Candle, except for the ending, of course. But to me, it's a wonderful part of my life. It's where I, I learned what I wanted to do in life and how to start figuring out how to do it. And, you know, the, the love of working with people closely, because uh, Clodagh was the first influence on my life musically. And uh, I just saw what you could do with, with two voices and original songs. And I, if I hadn't met her, I would never have maybe done that until much later. You're not so bad after all. <laughs> it's a good legacy. I think it's a good legacy. I, I feel proud of that because, you know, to be proud of something that you did 50 years ago is an achievement in life.
Swaddling Songs at 50 was presented and produced by Cahal Funge. And if you know someone who you think simply has to hear that story, you could tell them that it's available as a podcast on the Lyric Feature webpage or to play from the RTE radio player.